Today in TFC Stock Geekka, we're going to explore the largest distributor of content in the world, period. They are the largest and following their latest success, Squeak Game, I think it reiterates their ability to use data and understand consumer trends to keep milking our attention. With their latest hire and commitment to enter the gaming space, we have to wonder how far can this company go? And I think it does not require much introduction as a consumer. We have consumed their content, interacted with their platform. But today, we're going to focus on the business model and how its growth will look going forward. So joining me today to kick out on this content giant Netflix is searching from the good investor and compounderfund.com. He strongly believes in Netflix and has a lot to say about their endeavor into gaming. At the core, we have to recognize that Netflix is a distributor and it has very strong pricing power. It just increased its pricing power recently. But can it stay dominant and keep growing? That's the question. For your reference sake, this episode was recorded on the 28th of July, 2021. Our discussion today is solely for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not serve as any form of advice or recommendations. Thank you for loving what we do and empowering us financially to do more for you. Join our Telegram to further discuss. Let's geek out. So yes, we back live today. Uh, me and Setting, we're going to record and talk about Netflix. You know, as a company, I think there's a, a lot of interesting stuff going on with Netflix. But more importantly, I think as a consumer and as an investor, there's some sort of difference there that we have to be very clear whenever we invest in something. Right, so if we're, we're a consumer, we can have a lot of fun with it, but is it worth the investment? That's the other side, right? So I think setting, you can start off not telling us like what does Netflix do as a, as a product, but the, the broader business. I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand. Yeah, sure. So I think uh, when it comes to Netflix, um, most people today, uh, or at least if you have come into contact with Netflix only in the past few years, would know it as a streaming services provider. And that is uh, its main core business today. But I think what's interesting is that Netflix did not start out as a streaming services provider. In its early days, it was actually sending out DVDs by mail. Right? So uh, in the past, people would rent DVDs from Netflix uh, via the internet, and Netflix would then send the DVDs to its subscribers. So it was also operating on a kind of a subscription business, but the subscription was for a DVD by mail rental service. So that was what Netflix used to do. And then I think sometime in 2007, uh, Netflix started streaming. Sometime in 2011, uh, it really kind of decided to go uh, all in on streaming and let its uh, DVD by mail business just slowly uh, wither away. I think it's still around, but it's just not... Uh, Wait, it's still yeah, around? It's not, yeah, I, I, I think so. Yeah, I'm not too sure. But it's, it's, Serving it's I the think it's only in the US or something. Yeah, And, and yeah, it's yeah. definitely not, uh, not something that uh, Netflix management pays much attention to. Yeah, so mm -hmm. the focus is purely on the, uh, the streaming services. Yeah, mm -hmm. so I think that's an interesting bit of history uh, with uh, Netflix that uh, I think a lot of new, new users may not uh, realize. Yeah, I think, I think the younger people may not even know what is a DVD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what is an era, right? So yeah. Netflix has fundamentally changed, you know, uh, the, the way we consume content in a, in a video form, or at least in a highly produced video format. Right, so I think even in video form these days, you got to separate out, right? Short form video, community-led video content, and then highly produced kind of video content. So Netflix is uh, clearly in the highly produced uh, side of things, right? But what are some core business processes as an investor we should be aware of? 
So as a streaming services provider, Netflix provides content, uh, entertainment content, and this uh, entertainment content can be split into both self-produced content or original content, uh, and the other side would be licensed content. So like content that have been produced by other content producers, and Netflix would then purchase a license uh, to show that program to its uh, audience. So there's these two big groups of content that Netflix uh, has in its library. Okay, great. Anyway, if, if uh, for all of you tuning in, if you have any questions, drop it in the comment. We'll answer it later because Netflix has a lot of changes recently. All right, so uh, can you kind of walk us through what is their business model then? You know, sure. uh, how do they make money and what's their pricing and all that jazz? Very simple uh, business model. It's a subscription-based business. It's a very, it has only one stream of revenue and that would subscriptions. So these subscriptions can come from either uh, a user subscribing for the DVD by mail rental service, uh, which is now a l- legacy and tiny, tiny part of Netflix business. Or, and then the other subscription service will be to its streaming services. So Netflix is in, I think, more than 200 countries worldwide now today. Um, and, uh, but the US still accounts for a significant chunk of revenue. But it's very much an international business. Uh, I think uh, in terms of total users uh, today, it has uh, significantly more users uh, in, in international markets as compared to the US. So it's a global streaming services provider and all its revenue just comes from its streaming services. Now, price points vary very widely. I think in the US, um, uh, Netflix doesn't really, uh, I think you can kind of like back calculate the average revenue per user. Off the top of my head, I don't have the numbers now, uh, but uh, it does vary pretty widely uh, across the world. So I think in the US, um, I, I think if you say average revenue per user is probably somewhere in the low teens range per month in terms of USD. But it can go down to much lower ranges as well in, in other developing markets where Netflix also recently kind of launched a mobile-only uh, plan that has a much lower uh, revenue per user. Yeah, so uh, there's a wide range of uh, price points that Netflix charges. But I think uh, it's still very much somewhere in the region of, say, a few dollars per month to 20 over dollars per month, depending on the type of subscription plan you're on and the geography you're in. Mm. I think Netflix is uh, making it very hard for content creators like us uh, to charge mm-hmm. any higher subscription numbers. <laughs> Everyone is benchmarking Netflix. It's like how we benchmark uh, the, the chicken rice $2 downstairs, you know, okay, maybe $3 <laughs> downstairs. They, they have set the benchmark price. But like you've pointed out, right, um, I'm a little bit concerned, but I don't know if you're concerned that they only have one revenue model mm-hmm. you know, at, at, at such a scale, right? Because they're mm-hmm. really very big in the US, mm-hmm. they're dominant, um, and there are a lot of competition coming in, right? So are you concerned about the business model in itself, or you know, how do you see it? In terms of the room for growth for Netflix, I think there's still a significant room for growth. I think if you look at like the number, um, I think in the most recent shareholder letter, Netflix did comment that uh, it has... I think somewhere like eight or nine hundred million uh, broadband households, or like users that you could potentially capture today. It's a uh, subscriber base is slightly over two hundred million, right? So there's still um, significant room uh, in terms of the number of subscribers that uh, it can capture. And then of course there's also room for pricing increases. I think Netflix is one of those interesting businesses where it always charges uh, a lower price than it can, even though the pricing has increased over time. But uh, it always tries to charge lower than it can. And that stems from management's philosophy when it comes to pricing increases. Uh, so what they really want to do is to deliver value for, for subscribers. And when they think that the value that they've de- delivered to subscribers has increased uh, significantly, then that is when they come up with pricing increases. And they try to keep the pricing increase lower than the perceived value that they have delivered to subscribers. 
And then in terms of the total viewing time, I think people might be surprised, but like say, if you look at say in the US where uh, it is like Netflix single largest um, geographical market and where it also probably has the highest uh, penetration rate. If you look at that, I think Netflix is still uh, in the low single digit percentage in terms of total viewing time. So if you talk about, let's say the total amount of time that people spend consuming entertainment content, uh, right, watching on the TV and so on, uh, Netflix is still only a low single digit percentage of that total viewing time. So I think from that perspective, when you look at the number of users that could potentially be won, the pricing increases that could potentially be put in, and the total and the potential increase in the total viewing time, I think there is still significant uh, room for the business to grow. You mentioned about that single revenue uh, stream, so I think that is a kind of a there there are pros and cons with that, right? So the pros is that with that single revenue stream. Uh, management is laser focused on making sure that it, it delivers an excellent uh, streaming experience, right? Uh, so that's the pro. Uh, the con is that, you know, uh, if one day streaming just um, dies a natural death, like say uh, in the world of cable, uh, then Netflix could be in trouble. But I think uh, for now at least, um, it's pretty clear to me at least that uh, streaming is uh, in, in, in the ascendancy, right? It, it, is, it is growing. And that's a view that uh, Netflix management also share. Yeah. Mm. Actually, if you think about it, amongst the Fang, Netflix has the simplest business model. I love yes, how right. I love how in three minutes we cover the business model already. I was like, ah, oh, don't see to Jiang already. Small content, more consumption, more streaming, more subscribers. Pretty yeah. much, pretty much that's the idea. Yeah. So that that's uh, that's very interesting, but amongst amongst um, a lot of uh, companies these days, right, a lot of people have all these kind of long gap measures. Right, they are not like accounting practice accepted, right? So, and total viewing time is one of those things that um, is a non-get measure that Netflix and other streamers will hop on, other streaming providers will hop on pretty tightly. Um, but as an investor, could you kind of help us understand why is this uh, total viewing time so important? Because it appears everywhere, every analyst use it. Yeah, so help us understand this. Uh, so non-get uh, often is used to refer to financial numbers that are not based on what's called uh, generally accepted accounting principles or GAAP. So if you use financial numbers that are not based on this uh, GAAP, then they call it non-GAAP. So I think viewing time is perhaps not really non-GAAP per se, but more of like just an important business metric, right? That can give us a certain window into uh, uh, the health of a, of, a, of a business. So in Netflix case, there's that total viewing time. Now, why is it important? Because I think ultimately, uh, as a subscription business, you want your subscribers to stay onto the service. You want a very low churn rate. And how do you achieve that? You achieve that by making sure that your service is used often and valued by your users, right? And, and so I think in this case, uh, total viewing time is a good proxy for like the value that uh, users or subscribers can uh, extract from Netflix. So if, they, if, if the viewing time is uh, increasing over time, then I think it's a kind of a good indication that... Uh, subscribers of Netflix are continuing to see value in the service uh, that the company provides. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, in your thesis, right? So for everyone that don't know, I'm actually on the compounderfund.com looking at the thesis <laughs> at this moment in time. So you should check out the compounderfund.com, which is a fund that certainly is managing um, and look at their thesis, right? So I think you, you talk about growth in uh, other, like beyond US growth. So we all understand that US 
forms about 50% of Netflix's revenue and is their biggest market. Um, recently, of course, with the pandemic opening up in the US, uh, we actually see a little bit of dip of subscribers there. But that one, I think most people can, more people can understand because you kind of go out, right? And then you, you don't really need to pay for this thing. So you kind of unsubscribe. So I, I kind of get that. And you're seeing the consumption pattern happening in the US pretty, in a more matured fashion. Whenever there's a HBO has something, people will, will subscribe. And then three months later, they unsubscribe because no more Game of Thrones, right? So you're seeing a consumer habit there forming. But I'm uh, more curious about what is your take on Netflix's Asian strategy like how are they trying to grow in this part of the world um, and they coming into the game is interesting but they are also very big players in, in this region already specifically in China for sure right uh, but what what do you think is their strategy in this part and what do you like about it yeah sure so I think with Netflix uh, its international strategy has been I think pretty consistent uh, based on my observations of the company's growth over the years so what they tend to do is uh, when they enter a, a new international market, uh, they will often have a library of uh, like US content or content from other countries that in the world that they already have. They put it in the service and then over time, try to grow the local content library. So over, uh, as they uh, grow their roots in the country, they will start uh, looking for uh, good content producers in that particular country and get them to produce con exclusive content for Netflix. And at the same time, also go out to hunt for uh, existing content that they can license. So it's very much, you know, um, entering a country first and showing the audience uh, content that Netflix already has and then trying to localize it over time. So what happens is over the years, the value proposition that Netflix has for users in a particular country will, in my opinion, actually grow because there is more and more localization over time. Um, right. So I think that is, uh, in terms of the content strategy, that's what Netflix is doing and, um, and has been doing. Uh, and in terms of like the pricing, uh, I think uh, increasingly we're seeing Netflix, uh, especially in emerging markets or other countries that are considered to be emerging economies, increasingly the company is pursuing a lower price point for its subscription. So perhaps going like say mobile only, where uh, the, I, I think perhaps like the amount of um, uh, data that needs to be streamed over the web is probably lower. Yep, and also um, coming up with basically subscription plans that uh, are more suited to people or economies where the income per population is uh, slightly on the lower end. Yeah, so I think that's uh, what they are trying to do. Uh, and, and if you look at Asia, I think uh, there are quite a number of countries within Asia that are considered to be uh, emerging economies or where the GDP per capita is uh, quite low compared to like say in the US or Singapore. You know, so I think uh, for those countries in terms of its... Um, Pricing strategy is definitely moving towards uh, lower price points. But what's interesting is I think in the latest um, quarterly commentary by the company, uh, it did mention that you know the low price points has not really been uh, cannibalizing the higher price points. So in a way, it's kind of Netflix really expanding the pie. So perhaps at the higher price points, there's only this amount of subscribers that can be won. But if it now uh, introduces a lower price point, then that is where you can actually really increase uh, the total number of subscribers that you can get without cannibalizing uh, the higher price points with perhaps better streaming features. Yeah. Okay, okay. But currently, the price difference is really just on where it can be consumed, right? Not so much about all the additional stuff that will come, like video gaming, like podcasts, and <laughs> all those things. Yeah. So I think okay. for now, uh, if you look at, uh, and you mentioned gaming, right? So that's one of the new uh, types, uh, new business lines that Netflix wants to enter. But gaming will not be a separate subscription. It's going to, so for example, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a current subscriber of Netflix. And so 
I, I, I presume so. Uh, you better sign up. Uh, you invest yeah. so much. <laughs> so you better be a user. You must love the product, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, that's a topic for another day. But okay. So as a subscriber of Netflix, when they start uh, to introduce the gaming feature, uh, if I log on to Netflix, uh, I'll be able to see it there. So it's kind of like, uh, it will be kind of like a new content category. So, you know, today if you're on Netflix homepage, they will classify their content according to genres, so like horror, western, action, whatever, right? And then there will be gaming, right? Uh, so it's going to be added on to a subscriber's existing subscription at, I think, no additional cost. Yeah, so it's not going to be a new separate line, but it's going to just be more value that a user can gain from his or her subscription. And I think this, again, you know, brings me back to the point I made earlier about uh, the way that the management team thinks about raising prices, which is, I first must deliver more and more value for my subscribers before I have the right to go and ask for a pricing increase. Yeah, so I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, after the introduction of gaming and if it catches on and uh, in terms of like usage trends and so on, then perhaps we may, build, we may see another round of pricing increases after that. Yeah, which is always the exciting part. Yeah, but in, interestingly, you actually believe that Netflix has a very strong balance sheet. Right, mm-hmm. which, uh, which, and, and, and they have a lot of debt at this moment in time, right? And mm-hmm. they've been, they've yes, been they uh, building more and more debt to, to do originals and, and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, can you kind of mm-hmm. give us a little bit clarity why you think that they actually have a stronger balance sheet than before? Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, in my case, uh, when I look at a company's balance sheet, I generally like companies that have more cash than debt on the balance sheet. But in the case of Netflix, uh, I wasn't worried despite knowing that there's uh, Netflix has significantly more debt on its balance sheet than cash. Now, uh, the reason is because I think that uh, there is a very good uh, reason why Netflix has a lot of debt on its balance sheet and it's because of its content strategy. So I think sometime in 2013 or so, Netflix started to pivot heavily towards producing original content. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting dynamic when it comes to original content is that you first have to pay cash upfront Right, to produce that content that then is able to be monetized or rather hopefully be able to be monetized over a very long period of time. Right? So what you first need is that investment upfront to create that content. So in the case, as Netflix ramped up its spending for original content, beefing up its content library, delivering more value to subscribers, what has happened is that um, it has had to take on more debt over time to be able to finance that original content spending. The, the reason why I think it's, uh, the balance sheet is okay despite the debt is because I think that that kind of spending on that original content is actually intelligent spending, right? It's to build an asset or to build a series of uh, uh, intellectual property that can be uh, monetized over a long period of time. If you look at, say, the churn rate in Netflix test, it's, uh, it's the lowest or one of the lowest among streaming services providers and it's a very healthy, I think, uh, from a monthly perspective. Uh, Netflix does not officially release churn rates, but there are third-party data providers that kind of try to guess that. And most of, most of the numbers that I've seen uh, point to like a very low uh, single-digit uh, churn rate on a monthly basis for, for Netflix. And what it means also is that the annual churn rate is also uh, very low uh, for Netflix. And so what this means is that it has a very, very sticky revenue. And so therefore, it has a lot of uh, ability to see ahead of time, okay, how much revenue will I be able to get in year one, year two, year three, and so on. Right? So it has a very good view of like, uh, the types of cash flows that it can bring in. And that, and that help, helps it to be able to um, plan out uh, the servicing of the, of the debt that it has. Right? It also helps to plan out like, uh, in terms of repayment of the debt that it has. 
uh, I think over time, we'll also be able to see Netflix cash flows that you can bring in from the from its subscribers start to significantly outpace the cash outlay that it has for uh, content production. And I think when it comes to that, then that is when it can slowly start uh, paring down the debt uh, on its balance sheet to a less risky level. But I think ultimately, the balance sheet where there's more debt than cash is still a risk uh, to think of. And that's something that uh, I did mention as well in, in my investment team. Mm, fair, fair. It's pretty interesting how they can have such a low churn and keep raising prices, right? Uh, <laughs> they've raised prices quite a few times and I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, people still use it. So, so it's, yeah. it's pretty interesting. But do you think the landscape has changed now that there are all these new providers that are coming in and they're not coming in like just trying, right? A lot of them that are coming in now, they come in with the whole wall chest. Right? So are, are you concerned? I think the, my answer is slightly nuanced. Uh, so what is happening is that Netflix is today, I think, the largest uh, spender on content. I think uh, it's easily going to be spending somewhere uh, between 15 or $20 billion on, on content production right, uh, in, in, in this year. Uh, and that is a phenomenal, uh, formidable amount of uh, capital that anybody has spent on, on content. But what is ha- happening is that Netflix has, a ver- has the largest uh, subscriber base in the world. And, and so what happens is the, the cost per subscriber is actually one of the lowest, if not per, perhaps the lowest among all its other uh, streaming competitors. And, and so what it means also is that Netflix can spend a lot more in absolute dollars on content and yet still keep costs low on a per subscriber basis. And that's, I think, a very strong and beautiful dynamic that other streaming services providers um, cannot achieve. So yes, you know, even though a lot of people are coming in hard with a lot of capital, but the, the sheer amount of capital that Netflix uh, is pumping into uh, into the business is something that I think is very difficult uh, to, to compete with. And I think what's also interesting and important is that uh, Netflix, because it has like a decade-long or more head start in streaming, right? it is able to design a better user experience, user interface, that's one, and also has a lot more data on uh, the viewing preferences of users. And I think that goes into like uh, the calculus when the company thinks about what content should it produce the types of content you should produce and also like the type of content that you should license and at what price, right? So I think the pricing and the type of content, that's also very important. And I think uh, in the case of uh, Netflix, because of the data that it has on uh, users' viewing preferences, um, it's able to make a much smarter investments in those areas as compared to uh, some of its peers. So I think overall, I'm not too worried, uh, even though there's all this influx of new competitors coming in. And, and I think, you know, if you look at, say, uh, what Disney Plus has done over the past one and a half years is phenomenal. They have, I think, today uh, grown. I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but they have achieved the target that they set themselves. It's accelerated by three or four years, right? The amount of subscribers that Disney Plus can bring in. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that also is uh, ha- happening at the same time as uh, when Netflix has also gone on to sign up a tremendous amount of uh, new subscribers. I think uh, from, from the end of 2019 to the end of 2021, uh, in that two-year time frame, I think Netflix is expecting to win or rather to have about 50, uh, more than 50 million new subscribers. That's a substantial number of new subscribers and that's happening uh, at roughly the same time as when Disney Plus is you know, reporting all its, uh, the kind of uh, blockbuster growth the numbers in subscribers as well. So I think when you look at that from that perspective, I think uh, you know sometimes competition Having new streaming services provider enter the arena is not necessarily, I think, a, a dire competitive threat for Netflix. So I think the, the overall uh, bigger picture really still has to be about um, streaming versus uh, legacy television, more so than you know, streamers versus uh, other streamers. 
Mm, nice. I mean, we're also streaming now. We are on Twitch, by the way, guys. Just saying, we're getting cool. <laughs> but yeah, so so I, I I totally get that, and it's it's pretty phenomenal because I think for a lot of people when they when they look at a company, they a lot of time they look at a company. I think for the newer investors, they look at it in isolation. Right, so they look at it in like, oh, you know, Disney is doing so well, so well, so well. But when you when you broaden it and you see, actually, a lot of people are all doing very well, right? So the 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 broad landscape is all doing well. Everyone's just riding high, and uh, it's it may not be a winner take all, and it may not be a one provider at the end kind of kind of game. I think in most markets there will be a few winners that will emerge, even if there's like a huge war, if you will. Um, th- there will eventually still be a few winners. I think that is often the case when it comes to uh, outcomes in the business world. It's never really a case of, uh, you know, just one winner. Even even in industries where network effects are super strong, like say in payments, right, you have so many winners in the in payment space as well, right? There's like MasterCard and Star, for example, both have done very well, uh, even though they are like literally direct and very fierce competitors with each other. And of full disclosure, my fund also owns positions Nice, good. Yeah, to- totally agree. I totally get that. But it uh, it does matter like who is the management, right? Who is managing these companies and then how, yes. how, how are we going to get it going, right? So I, I love how Netflix is so simple as a business and uh, they do have a lot of quirky management. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that has published all sorts of weird leadership books that uh, are counter, counter corporate culture. So you kind of mm-hmm. walk us through like a little bit more of how you think about their management. Sure. So actually, the study of a management team is a very important part of my research process with the company. So I like to look out for management teams that have integrity, capability, and the ability to innovate. Right. In Netflix case, I think it has uh, all of these uh, ingredients. So I think integrity, if you look at the way that uh, the compensation of Netflix management has changed over time, uh, it's very much roughly in line with the growth of the business in the company. So I, I kind of like that. I like seeing compensation tracking the growth of the business. But I think the really interesting uh, aspect of Netflix management is just the uh, capability and also the ability to innovate. One very interesting aspect, Reed Hastings, the founder and current co-CEO of Netflix, was interviewed uh, many years ago uh, by, I think it was Forbes magazine or Fortune, I can't remember which. And, and he actually said that, you know, we named the company Netflix and not DVD by mail.com for a reason. And that is because from very early on, they kind of already knew and foresaw that television or entertainment content should be delivered over the web. And that was a time when streaming wasn't in the mainstream lexicon yet, right? And and so I think he used, uh, uh, he did not use the word streaming, but I can't remember what, what phrase, what turn of phrase he used, but basically it was describing the idea that, you know, uh, the entertainment content should be delivered over the web. And in 2011, I think uh, Netflix management made a move that uh, made me deeply admire them. Earlier on in this uh, uh, webinar or podcast, I mentioned that Netflix business started off as DVD by mail, right? And so that was the cash cow. They were generating healthy cash flows from that particular business. But in 2011, the management decided to just spin that off into a company called Quickster, right? So I think today, if you you Google Quickster debacle or something, there'll be a series of articles that describe what happened during that time. Uh, Netflix management wanted to spin off uh, Quickster and basically completely cut off uh, the DVD by new business from from Netflix and they wanted to focus entirely on streaming. But uh, there were a lot of constituents of the the company that were not happy with that move and eventually management kind of uh, retraced their steps and said that, you know, okay, we're going to still keep the DVD by new business. We're we're not going to spin it off, but 
you know, we're not going to spend a lot of our res management resources on that. We're going to be focused on streaming. And I thought that was really interesting because I think first it's really rare uh, for a business leader to want to just completely cut off uh, its existing cash cow and focus on where it thinks the world is going to go in the future. So I think that's a, a hallmark, a very strong sign of a management team that has its eyes firmly on the future. So now there's this, uh, I think, overused quote, you know, you should skip to where the puck is going uh, and not where it has gone to, right? So the idea is that Netflix has, uh, Netflix management team wanted to skip to where uh, they thought the world would be heading towards, which is a world where entertainment content is delivered and, uh, via, mainly via streaming. And so uh, I thought that was a very strong sign of an uh, innovative management team. And the fact that you know, they managed to pull it off with a bomb, judging by the number of subscribers they have today, the revenue space that they have today, I think something like 25 or 26 billion in trailing revenue today. I think that is a very strong um, sign that you know, this is a company that has executed very well. And so there's that capability portion and then the, the innovation portion is really like, you know, oftentimes we talk about companies riding on tailwinds, right? You know, they can say, oh, you know, I'm riding on e-commerce tailwind or I'm riding on the, the streaming tailwind and whatnot. But I think there are categories of companies where they are the ones that are creating the tailwinds. And I think in the case of Netflix, it is such a company. It, it essentially created or brought uh, the world's attention onto what streaming can be, right? So it created that kind of tailwind for itself and has been um, riding on it. So I think that is one of the things uh, that I really like about Netflix, which is just the, you know, the, the strength of the management team and, and how uh, it has grown the business over time and how it thinks about its uh, competitive landscape. So on, on the competitive landscape topic, right, this is something that I often bring up um, whenever people talk about Netflix with me, which is that you know, when, when you think about competitors, uh, you often think about other streaming services providers, right? But to Netflix management, that is not the case. So uh, many years ago, uh, Netflix management team actually came out with an essay called The Long-Term View, or is it The Long View, something like that. You know, they talked about their view towards uh, competitive forces as well, right? Um, and what the company mentioned was that, you know, uh, competition actually isn't uh, just streaming services providers. It's actually anything that you, that you spend your time not on Netflix. Right, so if you're exercising, if you're watching a movie on, say, Disney Plus or, or, or Amazon Prime or, or something else, or you know, if you're streaming music instead of watching a show, if you're playing a computer game instead of watching a, pro a program on Netflix, that is competition, right? So anything, any activity that you are doing besides stre uh, streaming on Netflix, that is competition, right? And, and I think that's a very, also very interesting way to think about uh, things uh, that is, I think, not common. Right, uh, but what, what I really like about the aspect is that, you know, when you have such a broad view about what competition really is, then I think it becomes harder, uh, or rather the chance that Netflix can be disrupted by competitive fosters from different angles is actually lower, right? Because I think it's harder for the company to be blindsided. And I think that, you know, today you see uh, the company trying to venture into gaming, right? Which is not really related to streaming at all. But um, if you think about the way Netflix frames competition, then I think that that move into gaming makes very strong strategic sense, right? Every time a company does a big pivot, I, I do think video gaming is a big pivot because there's a whole operational process that needs to come out, you know, uh, for Netflix, right? It's, it's, not, it's not like just a new genre of shows or, or something, right? There's a whole ops uh, that comes out and they have actually hired quite a guy to come into the team. 
right? Um, I think Mike Verdu was from Facebook, used to be in EA, Atari, and what have you, right? So, so they brought in quite a, quite a leading person in the space to come in. But every time a company pivots, some investors will like it, some investors won't, right? So I'm sensing that you like it, you know, and, and can you kind of walk us through in, in your view in a little bit more detail? Like, why, why do you think this is a good move for, for Netflix based on their business model? Right, so uh, Netflix business model, as I mentioned earlier, is, is, uh, is subscription-based. And how do you maintain a healthy subscription business is that you really want to continue to capture the attention of your subscriber, right? So in this case, if you can introduce gaming and if it works out well, then you capture more attention from your existing subscriber and it increases the stickiness of the product, right? So I think from that perspective, um, it excites me that you know, Netflix now has another avenue to improve the stickiness of the product that it has for subscribers. And the other interesting aspect is that um, because Netflix is a pure subscription business and it does not see gaming as a new subscription line, although in the future it may you know, just kind of spin off gaming as a new subscription service, but for the time being, because gaming is really seen as an additional kind of a customer acquisition and customer retention tool, uh, what it does is it frees up gaming developers that Netflix work, works with to really kind of let their imagination run wild, to really just produce high-quality games that can capture user attention instead of having to worry about, okay, how should I monetize the game? Right? Because today, if you look at a lot of games, they often have to worry about the monetization model. You know, do I want to do a freemium model? And if it's a freemium model, what kind of in-game content should I sell? Right? And, and if it's a subscription model, you know, sometimes you also want to have in-game content that you can sell. Right? And if it's a, uh, a one-off uh, sale, model, then you also, also have to worry about, you know, how do I generate that kind of recurring revenue? And, sh and then the question becomes, okay, what other types of in-game content can I sell if I'm actually selling the game on a one-off model? So there are a lot of trade-offs that I think uh, game developers have to make uh, in terms of uh, between the gaming experience and between uh, the potential monetization models. I, I think sometimes, you know, both of these things can come together very well, but sometimes it's a trade-off that uh, game developers have to make. But in the case of Netflix, because of the way that they are framing the development of that particular business, I think uh, it really just frees the uh, game developers that Netflix is working with to just purely focus on creating excellent gaming content without worrying about the manifestation aspect of it. So I think that is really interesting as well because you, you, it made you, you never really know what kind of new gaming models that can, that can appear. And I think what's also interesting is that I think uh, in the early days of this uh, uh, venture at least, Netflix is going to focus on producing games that are related to its existing intellectual property. I, I'm kind of looking forward to see you know, whether or not such uh, games can help to extend the longevity of uh, Netflix existing IP. Uh, and also, you know, besides uh, extending longevity, could it you know, increase the overall kind of uh, fan base uh, uh, interaction uh, with Netflix content. So yeah, these are the areas where I'm just uh, like excited about with the, with the new gaming. For sure. I, I think it's going to be very interesting because sometimes when we play games, right, some of the in-game video dialogues, actually, I, I hope that they could extend it, right? There could be a lot more. This, it's like World of Warcraft, like if you play WoW or you, or you, 
And then you see the, the Warcraft movie and I'm like, oh, dude, this could be so powerful, right? Like they could just spin off a whole franchise and then you could consume the movie and then they could ping you to say, you want to continue to play a game, connect with your friend or something, right? So, so it kind of it kind of builds up the whole ecosystem. Of course, this is all imagination, right? We don't know how it's going to come out yet. But to me, it's like, yeah, it's, a, it's like Disney, you know, it's it's like it's like the Disney model. You 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 build content, but then you you put it into different different ways of monetization. So Netflix is doing it in a different fashion, going digital. Yep. And I've been telling people, uh, game franchises will be the future, you know, of uh, online content, right? And, yes, and yes. cannot cannot underestimate the value of games as a franchise, as a license, you know, as a brand yes. itself. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. I I completely agree with you. So like, yeah. So there's a uh, no potential for Netflix to build. Uh, games from existing uh, from its existing content suite. So I think like Stranger Things, for example, would be could make for a really interesting game. Like in like it could be like a Half Life kind of a a, a a game, right? Where like you have like horror and action mixed in into a game. So that's I think pretty cool. Uh, on the other and on the other hand, you know, if the gaming thing really does take off, you could even see movies or TV series being made uh, from popular gaming franchises that come up from Netflix Gaming Studio. But, you know, all of these, uh, it's still super early days. Uh, there's nothing concrete yet um, when it comes to what Netflix, Netflix is going to introduce with its gaming arm. So uh, we'll see. But I think, uh, you know, uh, as you rightly pointed out, I think the, the person that is going to hit or lead the gaming business uh, has a very impressive uh, um, uh, resume. Right, uh, and, and yeah, I think it's a really good hire done by Reed Hastings and team. Yeah, Atari, le, Atari so old school. <laughs> Such a long time ago kind of thing. These guys, this guy definitely has a lot of experience. But okay, so, so all these positive about the management and all, right? But we cannot forget that they did miss out on the Roku uh, avenue, right? So, mm-hmm. so Roku is the hardware that got... Like Netflix rejected that idea, right? And and then the they, the the guys decided that okay we'll leave and then we'll go, just go and do that hardware streaming. It's like Apple, and uh, what what do they call it? The 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 box. That's how they started. But now they have integrated with most of the TVs and hardwares and and what have you, right? So how would you how would you rate management when it comes to missing out on this very big hardware spinoff at a, at a point in time? Yeah, so I'm not super familiar with that particular history. I know only like a little bit here and there. Uh, but if I look at Roku's business model today, it's, it's very much tied to digital advertising, to connected televisions. And this is a just a very different type of business that Netflix wants to pursue. So Netflix is very heavily anti-advertising. Okay, not I wouldn't say anti-advertising, but it doesn't look at advertising at all as a, as a, uh, a revenue stream. So um, interestingly... And I think also in the latest quarterly earnings conference call, uh, there was a question about uh, sports and why Netflix is not pursuing sports. And so uh, Reed Hastings or, or one of the members of the management team actually said that, you know, Netflix as a company, you know, they are very laser focused on their value proposition, which is on-demand uh, streaming without advertising. So it's very laser focused. Sports is, uh, sports revolves around a fixed time and has, is supported by a lot of advertising. So it's antithetical to, to the Netflix business model. And hence, it's not something that Netflix is interested in uh, at the moment. Things could change in the future, but at least for a long time in the past and now, no, it's not something that it's interested in. So, you know, in, in the case of like Roku as well, where it's really just acting as like a conduit for uh, advertisers to, to be able to uh, do advertising more effectively via uh, digital TVs. 
So I think from that from that perspective, there isn't much connection between the Roku business model and the Netflix business model. Yeah. Mm. It, and in that sense, you will you will actually rate the Netflix management better because they have rejected this whole other business model and they are laser focused on it. So they kind of stayed on their track in that sense because not every opportunity you should pick it up, right? Uh, so so that's kind of that's kind of what I'm what I'm trying to find out. So no, no sorry. So I, I kind of misunderstood your question a little bit. So no, I, I, I think I am ambivalent on, on that on that uh on what Netflix management team has done with Roku. I do not have any positive nor negative opinions. Yeah, I, I yeah, so my comments earlier were just on like uh the differences between uh Roku and Netflix business model today and why these two companies may not be a good fit for, for each other. Okay, yeah, that's good. Good enough, right? So I, I think um, Netflix has a lot of good things to 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 give people. I mean, it is where it is today. It is pretty big in in itself, right? Um, so on on the on the discussion of uh, the modes of the business, right? Maybe I think you already shared a lot of stuff. But is there any other thing that we should know about you know it as a company? Where where do you see? It? Why do you think it's very resilient going into the future? Yeah, so I think uh, in Netflix's case, the biggest competitive advantage uh, is really Reed Hastings, the CEO of Netflix. I think he's <laughs> the smartest guy in the room in the entire entertainment space. Right? So he's combining uh, software smart with uh, digital uh, entertainment smart. So I think uh, when you have that combination, which is, I think, rare, I think it's harder for competitors to try and compete. But I think he is really, like I think, the single biggest um, competitive advantage that Netflix has. I think... Everything that Netflix has built today stems from his vision, his early on vision, right? Like Netflix wouldn't have like the 10 plus years of head start in streaming if Rick Hastings did not push the company toward that uh, vision he had of, uh, of streaming. So everything stems from Rick Hastings. And I think as long as you maintain that kind of laser focus on, you know, continuing to deliver and grow the value proposition that Netflix has for its users, then I think, uh, you know, uh, the company should be in um, pretty good hands. Um, and, and I think there's still a long way to go before there is a shakeout in the streaming services uh, space as well. I think today, in terms of streaming, it's still only about maybe about like a quarter or so, or maybe 30%, something like that, of total viewing time in, I think, in the US or globally. can't remember which. But the idea is that, you know, uh, there's still a lot of uh, viewing time for streaming services providers as a whole to, to win, right? Netflix management has said that perhaps when that ratio... Flips, you know, now it's say 70, 30, right? 30% streaming, 70% traditional TV. But when it flips to say 30, 70, meaning 70% streaming or 60% streaming, then that is when potentially you can start seeing shakeouts happening, right? Where like, you know, the streaming services providers start competing very fiercely with each other to win uh, subscribers from each other. Uh, then I think, but even then, I think, uh, you know, when you look at who is likely to have the largest subscriber base and hence the, the lowest cost Con- lowest content cost per subscriber, I think uh, Netflix will have to be uh, in, the, in the conversation. Uh. Yeah, that's damn cool. Right? So if you guys have any questions, drop it in the comment section, we'll reply you. But um, I think Netflix is a very simple business model and a pretty, pretty good team. And they're just continuously doing what they do. So it's like a, it's quite a flywheel, right? They're not doing a lot of big changes. Um, of course, the, the whole new like gaming thing is a thing, but that's just too early for us to really comment as to like, is this really working or whatever, right? Give it a, maybe two or three year, more years and then with more data, we can see if that business model actually works. Uh, but to sum up today, uh, just kind of walk us through 
uh, what are some of the risk factors that you think Netflix will face? And uh, you know, to you, what, what is the future? Yeah, so I think uh, earlier I mentioned about the amount of debt that's on Netflix balance sheet. So I think that is still a risk. Uh, Netflix uh, in 2020 started to give a glimpse of like, I think the types of cash flows that it could potentially produce uh, when it's in a more steady state. I think uh, when it can slow down its original content spending, then you can start really seeing the cash flow starting to generate. But for now, its cash flow is, is still not very, um, not very healthy. That, that's a big risk to watch, you know, that, that weak balance sheet. I think in generally speaking, when a company has more debt than cash, that always puts it in a riskier position than uh, if it has more cash than debt. So, so that's one. Another important risk is really, uh, as I mentioned, competition. I, I, I think that Netflix has a very strong competitive position, but you never know. Things can change, right? Um, and like you rightly pointed out earlier, right, that uh, there are more and more of these uh, streaming services providers coming in. Um, and maybe for all you know, there could be a very new kind of um, a new app or something that pops up from nowhere that sucks up users' attention significantly. TikTok, and therefore TikTok. people... Yeah, TikTok, you know. Yeah. This is, uh, I, I, and I believe that the Netflix will actually see TikTok as, as competition as well, right? So, you know, you, you never really know. Uh, there's no guarantee that I think Netflix will continue staying on top. So that's one. Um, and then uh, there's, I think, very high key man risk as well. Like I said, you know, I think read these things is like the competitive advantage for Netflix. And, mm. and if the company does lose him for whatever reason, then I think that could deal a very big blow to Netflix. And on the key man risk topic, I think there's another person worth mentioning, which is Ted uh, Sarandos, who is also Netflix co-CEO. Uh, he was promoted to the position fairly recently. Prior to that, he was uh, the head of uh, content at Netflix. And I, again, I think it's a really smart move by Reed Hastings to promote Sarandos to co-CEO. I think that's one way you can give career progression for somebody who is very important to the future of the company as well. So Sarandos has been leading the, the, the content production efforts of Netflix for a long period of time. So a lot of the growth that Netflix has experienced in its content production has really be, has really um, come from the leadership of uh, Ted Sarandos. So I think you know the fact that he's now co CEO, uh, I think uh, lowers the risk or the chance that Sarandos would grow bored at his job and want to leave uh, Netflix. <laughs> so that's that key man risk. Yeah. Oh, and I think the last risk would actually be like COVID nineteen. I think um, uh, depending on how the virus uh, develops, because Netflix, you know, ultimately as a streaming services provider. Uh, its business health actually depends on the introduction of new content from time to time. So, you know, if, if COVID-19 starts to worsen significantly from here, then, uh, and, and if you no know, countries around the world start, you know, shutting down uh, uh, human movement significantly again, then that could uh, create a severe uh, kind of vacuum um, in terms of like the original content that Netflix can introduce to to viewers, uh, and if that happens, then I think the growth of the business could be affected. Mm. I have to say, Netflix's uh, kind of content is hard to produce. It takes a very, very big team and and all that jazz. So I totally get what you're saying. It's not like two of us like that. Oh, we just stream in, then we just talk out, talk out, right? Then let's you know, have a good discussion. And that's it, right? They have a the very long production process, and it's yes. international, right? So yeah, I don't yes. get it uh, from a production standpoint. It will be pretty hard. Or oh, perhaps maybe worth mentioning as to one of like the uh, advantages uh, that Netflix has over its peers is that because it's such a global streaming services provider, right? You know, if you're an aspiring or, or very talented content producer, you kind of know that, you know, if, even if I were to build a piece of content that is geared toward my local audience, say like, for, like say a con Korean content producer building for Korean audiences, 
there's a chance also that my content could catch on with many other uh, viewers in uh, across the world because given the nature of the streaming service that Netflix has, uh, I'm sitting in Singapore, but I can watch content that's produced in like the Philippines, in in France, in in Korea, in any other countries, right? And I think what's interesting also is that uh, Netflix has realized that often localized content is also able to win an international audience. And, and I think that's also, I think, something that is competitive strength that Netflix has, I think, because it, it allows the company to pitch itself better to content producers, make the company more attractive to work with uh, when it comes to, you know, content producers thinking about which platform should I be on and so on. Mm. It's, it's the whole developer ecosystem, kind of like how people build on iOS first you know, these days. And I, 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 I never saw it that way, but yeah, as a content producer, Netflix, you should call us, right? So we can, you know, do content for you. Very happy to do that, right? Just hello at thefinancialcoconut.com, yeah? So, <laughs> 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 yeah, okay. So, so I think, I think uh, we've covered a lot about Netflix and uh, for everyone else that wants to um, see your full thesis, go to thecompounderfund.com or they can, they can ping you, LinkedIn, whatever you, they could probably just talk to you directly if there's a need to. So that's Netflix for all of you. If you have any questions, come to our Telegram group. And thanks for joining us. 10 a.m., right? You should be working, uh, but never mind. You join us. It's a good choice. Huh? So that's it for today. Thank you, Sutsing. Take care. Woo! Thanks, Reggie, for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hey, Coconut. So I hope you learned something useful today and definitely recognize that investing is a personal decision. We're not giving you any recommendations here, but I'm always happy to geek out with you about different interesting companies and trends for the future. This series has a lot more depth and terms, so if you have any questions for us, do join our community telegram group or DM us on our socials. Link is in the description. If you love us and want to help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. And to stay tuned with what is happening in the markets and in the TFC network, do sign up for our weekly newsletter at thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, I hope you have a great day ahead and may you improve to become a confident, insightful and disciplined investor, ultimately creating the life you love while managing your finances well. See ya next week.